first time I've had to see everybody's face from up here. And I must say, you're even better looking than the last time I saw you. I don't know what happened, but no one got any older. A good-looking group here today. But we need more of our ethnic families to come back. Where are our Africans? You know, we need uh, we need to see the all the multi-ethnic community that uh, we enjoyed for so many years. So please come back to us. We, we miss you so much. We also want to acknowledge that uh, Edie and Betty's parents are here today. Art and Liz Clutchy. Liz is uh, right now in the midst of uh, some cancer treatment. And uh, we just really pray for that all the time and uh, we just treasure every moment we can have. Praise God for the godly influence they have been on all of us in the family. We're starting a new series today um, entitled Kingdom Come. And it's about developing a kingdom mentality or mindset. It's very easy to have a worldly mindset because the world is all around us. It's reaching to us from in all directions. It's offering us so much. Sometimes that's all we notice. But the Bible encourages us to have a kingdom mentality. To not lay up treasures on earth, but treasures in heaven, because where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. And so we're going to talk about that in, the, in this series. And this morning we're going to look at Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Father, we thank you for fact that your kingdom is with us. It's not something remote that someday we will experience, but it's right among us. In fact, this, this morning is an example of how your kingdom comes. And so we, uh, we just want to praise you for the way that your presence is here this morning. And we just look forward to what you have to uh, share with us and, and speak to us about. Thank you for the opportunity we've already had to worship you and fellowship with these wonderful people. So we thank you for your word now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As a boy growing up, he heard about it all the time. In school, his friends would mention it. Later, as a small businessman, his customers were very vocal on the subject. And in the synagogues, the rabbis would be passionately praying about it. Divine intervention. The deliverance from oppression, the defeat of their enemies. They were all hoping that God would send someone like Joshua, or maybe another David, or Elijah, Someone, some dynamic, fearless hero who could rally the nation and force the Roman army to retreat. That was the deepest longing in every Jewish heart. The restoration of the kingdom of Israel and the throne of David. But that never happened. Because God would offer them something more than that. Much much more. But it wouldn't be enough. 
because it wasn't exactly what they had ordered. Too much ham, not enough pineapple. And so there he was, living right in the middle of their shame and their suffering, with a plan that was so radical that it could get him killed. And that's because he was moving against the deepest aspirations of the Jewish people in the opposite direction. You get a bad feeling about this. There's, there's going to be blood. And that became clear from the very beginning, even during that epic duel in the desert documented here in Matthew chapter 4. You see, when John the Baptist began his ministry, he called his nation to repent. And then he invited them to bear witness to their sincerity by being baptized in the Jordan River. And that's when Jesus of Nazareth got his cue. That's when he knew it's time. So he went to the river. He was baptized by John, not in repentance, but as a divine seal of approval that this was the first step in fulfilling all righteousness. The kingdom of God was at hand. And so when Jesus came up out of the water, God the Holy Spirit joined the celebration disguised as a dove. And God the Father spoke audibly from heaven and said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Just imagine if God gave the uh, commencement address at your graduation. What if he told everyone how much he loved you? Or if he gave a toast at your wedding? Or a speech at your retirement party? How does God really feel about us? You are my son. You are my daughter, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Powerful words like that can change your life. I remember hearing them in my early 20s. And 50 years later, I still feel the impact of God's affirmation. So obviously, this meant something very profound to Jesus. And these were the words that would sustain him for the rest of his life. But there were other words that he would hear that could have shifted his focus. It says in Matthew 4 that then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Just imagine from a wonderful glimpse of glory at the Jordan River right into the heart of enemy territory, the desolate desert of temptation. Talk about culture shock. This was a natural habitat of serpents and scorpions. It says after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. How long does it take you to get hungry? Four hours? It's about average, right? Forty days and forty nights afterwards, he got hungry. God's people have often fasted when they've had an important decision to make. When they're hungering and thirsting for God to reveal his will. And that's what this was all about. Because if you want to do God's will, there are many options available. That's why we have so many 
different abominations, uh, I mean denominations. So what would Jesus choose? The path of righteousness or perhaps the road that seems right? It says in verse 3, the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Satan's mind is filled with ideas. Lots of ideas on everything. On how to enjoy sin. Or how to succeed. Or how to find yourself. How to fulfill your potential. He also has a lot of ideas on how to execute God's will. And in this case, it was obvious. Jesus was hungry, so it was a no-brainer. Give us this day our daily bread. You're 40 days behind on your rations. Nobody wants to see you starve to death. You're entitled to some gluten. If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Is there anything more irresistible than fresh baked bread? Can you just smell it? just melts in your mouth. I can't believe it's not butter. During the pandemic, there were always lineups of people looking for food. You saw them at McDonald's and at Tim Hortons and at Cobb's Bakery. Oh, fresh bread. Of course, if you buy something from Cobb's, it doesn't have any preservatives, so you have to eat the whole loaf before you get home. Oh, man. Fresh bread. If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. If you are the Son of God. That's interesting. Because 40 days ago, God had just announced, This is my Son, whom I love. But after 40 days of deprivation, that was a distant memory, refracted like a shimmering mirage in the desert, heat. I'll be honest, you know, I'm, I'm more convinced of God's love when I'm having a good day. On a bad day, not so much. Forty days of starvation can create all kinds of doubts. So if you are the Son of God, if you still are, why not do a little miracle just to prove it? If you are, truly. And this is one of Satan's most successful tactics. Little questions. I'm curious. Could you clarify something for me? Did God really say you must not eat of this fruit? Are you remembering that correctly? If you are the Son of God, can we see some ID? How about some evidence? Can you turn water into wine? Can you feed 5,000? Can you turn these stones into, into bread? If you are the Son of God. Because if you can turn these stones into bread, then that's your brand. You're the bread maker, the master baker. Just imagine fresh manna every morning. That's exactly what your nation needs. These people are poor. They're undernourished. You can feed them. 
if you fill their stomachs, they'll follow you anywhere. I've noticed over the years that a lot of people will come to church if you have food. You get a lot more people. We've seen that with uh, Alpha and with Focus. So if you're a foodie, I definitely recommend Heaven because they have a banqueting table that is just amazing. And you can taste and see that the Lord is good. In hell, even their toast is burned to a crisp. Not much good going on there. So if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. You obviously want to make a difference. And you are the only one who can solve the problem of world hunger. Otherwise, if you don't do it, it's just going to continue for another 2,000 years. And today we have countless Christian ministries addressing the problems of clean water and hunger all around the world. And that is a very righteous endeavor. It's one of the most important things that's happening. In fact, there's only one thing more important. Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. What food is to our stomachs, God's word is to our souls. And that was Christ's priority. Of course, Jesus could have improved the circumstances of his oppressed, impoverished nation. But that was a secondary objective. His main target was the souls. And that's the part of us that hungers and thirsts for God. And so Jesus was not applying for the position of chief baker because he was a soul man. And the soul can only be satisfied by God's word. Have you experienced that when you read God's word and it just answers everything that you're thinking about right now? It just fills your very being. Wow. The soul is nourished by God's word, which brings up a question. If you were to eat food as often as you study the Bible, what kind of physical condition would you be in today? There's a lot of healthy bodies containing undernourished, emaciated souls. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Well, we're not getting anywhere, are we? Let's try something different. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point in the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Yeah, you know, feeding the hungry can be a very time-consuming vocation. It could take years before you could build that ministry into a movement. Wouldn't it be better to get their attention through one amazing, death-defying demonstration? 
I'm not an expert, but I'm going to assume that if you are the Son of God, then you must be invincible. So you could, for example, do some base jumping from the top of the temple without a parachute, without a net. And wouldn't the angels form a mosh pit and catch you before you hit the ground? I'll bet you won't get a concussion. You won't even stub your toe. And can you imagine how impressed the audience would be? They would immediately realize that you are the Son of God, the one who has come to rescue them from all their troubles. They would follow you anywhere. After all, after that, all you'd have to do is an occasional booster miracle to keep their attention and maintain their devotion. You think you could do it? If you are the Son of God, can you trust God to protect you from harm? Doesn't it say he will command his angels concerning you? It is written. If Jesus is going to use an it is written on the devil, he's going to come right back at you with his own it is written. He knows the Bible better than most of us, even if it doesn't really apply to the situation at hand. This is kind of like a chess game. For it is written, he will give command his angels concerning you. Check. Verse 7, Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Checkmate. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. You know, there's still a huge market for manifestations. A lot of people say, if only you will show me a sign, then I'll believe. Where's the evidence? Show me a miracle. And Jesus Christ superstar, Herod says, prove to me that you're no fool. Walk across my swimming pool. But you know, when you read the Gospels, you realize that Jesus did most of his miracles for those who already believed, the people who had faith, not for those who doubted and demanded a sign. He often turned them down. We say, I'll believe it when I see it. God says, when you believe it, then you will see it. Because faith does not come by seeing. Faith comes by hearing the word of God, Romans 10, 17. So do not put the Lord to the test. It's because God is not our student. He's not going to show up for exam time. God does not need to take any test to prove himself. God does not have to answer all of our questions. Because he has already answered the two most important questions anyone would ever ask. Skeptics and philosophers maintain that there's a problem with God. And there's one of two possibilities. Either God is all-powerful and not very loving, or he's all-loving but not that powerful. That's the problem. So look at those questions. Number one, is God all-powerful? 
We sang about it this morning, Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. If you look at the universe, can you imagine the power that God has to create that, to sustain that? He says, it says, day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. All of creation testifies to God's power. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. It is so clear. Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 1. He talks about how the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And that certainly includes uh, atheistic evolutionists. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. God has given us more evidence than we can ever investigate. We've only seen a fraction of it. We have an infinite universe filled with evidence. We can, don't need to say, God, show us more. No, he's shown us enough. Way more than we can comprehend. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities... His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what is made, so that men are without excuse. No one can come to God in the final judgment and say, you didn't give us enough evidence. There is absolutely no excuse. It's so clear. An infinite universe is conclusive evidence of the power of God. And that's why the Bible answers our most agonizing questions with three words. God is able. No matter what the situation, God is able. So the problem is not a lack of power. Well, what about love? Is God all loving? Well, if creation is overwhelming evidence of God's power, then the cross is overwhelming evidence of God's love. God loves you so much that he suffered condemnation and damnation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He suffered that so you could be forgiven and have everlasting life. There is no greater love than this. There's nothing that even comes close to that. Any questions? So do not put God to the test. Don't question his power. Don't question his love. No one has ever told me that I have to rewrite my grade 8 math exam or my university philosophy midterm or my seminary theology final because I passed those tests. No further testing is necessary. We don't have to question God's power or his love. The evidence is beyond convincing, exceeding abundantly beyond the necessity to convince. Only a fool would presume to test God any further. The fool who has said in his heart, there is no God. 
Verse 7, Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. I know God protects me, but I'm getting vaccinated anyway. I'm still going to get a yearly physical. I'm still going to take blood tests. I'm still not eating Tide Pods or tomato sauce, even though God protects me. I'm not going to test God. Again, verse 8, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said. All this I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. Isn't this what you came for? You came to conquer the world, all of these kingdoms, Egypt and Babylon and Persia and Greece. Have you seen Rome? You've got to see Rome. Someday they're going to make movies about it. He showed them all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And you can fast forward to all the kingdoms after that. Amazon, Apple, Microsoft. You came to conquer the world. Well, that's quite ambitious. Unfortunately, you're going to face fierce opposition every step of the way because I know these empires. These are my people. And unless I give up control, they will never leave me or forsake me. He showed them all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. All this. I will give you. And Satan was not exaggerating. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 5, 19, we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. He was able to offer that. But I'll tell you, here's what you're up against. John chapter 3, verse 19, light has come into the world. But men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. So either you're going to be struggling with your mission for the next 2,000 years, or you can make a deal with the devil. And with one simple gesture of gratitude and appreciation, R-E-S-P-E-C-T, just a little respect, a professional courtesy, that's all I ask. And that is my final offer. All the kingdoms of the world and their splendor I will give you if you bow down and worship me. You know, this really would have looked good on Satan's resume, wouldn't it? Lucifer, burdened with glorious purpose. Tempter extraordinary. Previous CEO of the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. References. The Son of God who bowed down and worshipped me. That would have looked good on his resume. All this I will give you. It must have been tempting. You can have it all. Right now. No down payment. No interest. I'll put you in my will. I'll give you clear title including mineral rights. It must have been so tempting. Well, no it wasn't. Not at all. Because that's not what Jesus was all about. 
He wasn't interested in the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. That meant very little to him. He even asked in Matthew 16, 26, what good will it be if a man gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? For Jesus, it was definitely not about the world. For him, it was about the kingdom of God. So the Son of God and Satan were not on the same page. They weren't even in the same library. Enough negotiation. I'm not buying. Don't waste my time. Because really, all this was was meant to be a distraction, a diversion. Because Jesus had fixed his eyes on one purpose, and he would not look away. So he said, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. See, there's the hook. Whatever you worship, you will serve. Worship is not just a one-time thing. If you start worshiping, you will continue in service. It is written, Worship your, the Lord your God and serve him only. And really, not much of that was happening in the world at that time and all of their splendor. Sure, there were a lot of knees bowing, but they weren't bowing to God. For the most part, Satan can be very convincing, but that day he lost his best prospective customer. And if you want to make sure that you don't get fooled or trapped by his offer, you have to stop being impressed by the world. You have to focus on the kingdom of God. Then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended him. And so in this series, we're going to take a closer look at this, this kingdom that's more important and more valuable and more enduring than the sum total of everything that man has achieved on this planet. We want to know what the kingdom of God meant to Jesus and what that kingdom should mean to us. And our key verse has to be Matthew 6.33, where it says, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added to you as well. We come at it from the other direction. If we take care of all these things first, then we'll have time to seek his kingdom. That's not how it works. You seek first his kingdom, and then you focus on the other things that are on your list. So did you do that this week? Did you seek first his kingdom? Because we have a lot of priorities. Social media is omnipresent. There's texts and tweets and Twitter and TikTok. And you can get so distracted. There's our career. There's our reputation, our status, our ambitions, our dreams, our bucket list, our families. What's more important than our families? So where would God's kingdom fit into our crowded schedule? Maybe number five, between uh, online shopping and returning the items that didn't fit. His kingdom might just go right in about there. Seek first 
his kingdom. As Abbot and Costello asked, who's on first? So, what would it mean? What would it practically mean to you this coming week if you would seek first his kingdom? Can you think of one thing that you would do differently? If you were to seek first his kingdom this next week, is there one thing that you would do differently? Father, we thank you that your kingdom is at hand. Even though the world is all around us, we can discern your kingdom and we can seek your kingdom. And Lord, give us a kingdom mindset so that that becomes our priority. It's probably not going to happen right away, but we can work towards that. As we set aside more and more the things of this world. Because the world, if anything else, is so attention-grabbing and dominating that there's no time left. We're just too busy. But that's not an excuse. Because we are commanded to seek first your kingdom. Help us to know how to do that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please remain seated. Before we sing our last song, we're just going to have a little bit of instrumental music. And I'd like you to think about that. If you were to seek first God's kingdom this week, Think of one thing 